Welcome to this week's sermon audio from Covenant Presbyterian Church of Fort Smith. Covenant is a church devoted to theological depth, intimate relationships, joyous worship, relentless evangelism, and sacrificial service. Coming up, a sermon from our series, Romans, the Gospel for Sinners. Here now is our pastor, Dr. John Clayton. What a wonderful time to dig in as we continue in uh, the epistle, Paul's epistle to the Romans. Uh, we're looking today at verses 7 through 13 of this 15th chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant word. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to, conform, to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, and him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's go to him in prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, we ask today that you would open our hearts and our minds by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your word has been read, and now your word is to be preached. And so we ask that we would hear it with joy. Speak to us today, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hope is one of the defining characteristics of the Christian life. Hope. It is not worldly, wishful thinking, as the world would have us believe. It's like somebody said to me one time, uh, they, they, I said, they had said, I hope the Razorbacks win. And I said, well, I, I'm not so sure about that. And they said, well, you're a, you're a pastor. You should have faith. You should truly hope that they win. And I, I didn't say it, but I thought, I don't think that's what we mean by faith and hope as Christians. Hmm. But it wasn't a moment for a theological lesson, and so I let it pass. But as Christians, we know, we know that hope is the conviction that what God has promised will be fulfilled. We, you and I, we can take God at His word, we might say. Christian hope, in addition, is typically, in the Scriptures, future-oriented. It's pointing us forward. For example, and we've studied this before, in the 8th chapter of Romans, Paul explains, quote, Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we hope for it with patience. Think about it this way. You and I have not yet entered the heavenly realm. 
We know it exists. God's word tells us it is so. And so we await. Our Lord has promised us the kingdom. Given us the guarantee of his spirit. And is preparing us. Even today for glory. Hope then. And I don't believe this is an overstatement. Hope then is essential to the daily Christian life. Hope is essential to the daily Christian life. On a daily basis, you and I may encounter pain. We may encounter sorrow. But they do not define our perspective. Our days may be filled with disappointment. We may know long days of disappointment and frustration. But they do not dictate our perception. We may encounter strife. We may even encounter strife in the most unlikely of places in the church. But it does not determine our point of view. Hope does. Hope determines our point of view. Hope affects or dictates our perception. Hope defines our perception. Hope helps us rise above the circumstances of our lives. Not on the shaky sand of optimism, but fixed firmly on the character of our sovereign God and His special revelation. If you have your Bibles open in front of you as we're looking at verses 7 through 13, look back at verse 4. Let's be reminded of this. Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Folks, hope divorced from the Word of God, that kind of hope may be momentarily helpful, but the trials of life will wash it away like footprints on the seashore. But hope rooted, hope rooted in the character of God and the surety of His infallible Word is an unchanging truth. It is as eternal as the Lord Himself. And so we look to the Word, even as we do in this moment. And we find that our God is faithful to His people. He is faithful to His promises, and He is faithful in His provision. And so the examining question for us at the beginning of the sermon, the examining question for us is not, does God keep His word? But rather, will you take God at His word? Will you take God at His word? And as you think about that question, that examining question for yourself, I want us to start with this theme, and that is that God is faithful to His people. God is faithful to His people. Now, you will note, if you're reading from one of the Pew Bibles, or you have your Bible in front of you, if it's the English Standard Version, uh, you'll note that I took uh, verse 7 from the previous paragraph, and I moved it down to the following paragraph. And and that is not a wrong translation. However, uh, I believe, as as many scholars argue, that actually 
Verse 7 should go with the following verses, not the preceding verses. And so I've looked at it that way. If you have ever studied uh, the Greek language, Koine Greek, uh, most Greek New Testaments will have it grouped as 7 through 13. But of course, uh, this is just... Uh, speculation on our part in the original manuscripts. Uh, there was no punctuation. There were no paragraphs. There were no sentences. Uh, the Greek language was all joined together uh, as it was written at that time. But the reason why that many scholars, and the reason why I believe that they are joined, I think is better understood with the translation that the New English translation uh, uses, and that is this. Receive one another, then, just as Christ also received you to God's glory. Now such a rendering should lead us then to ask, who are we to receive? And it is very possible that verse 7 is talking about the strong and the weak, going all the way back to verse 1 of chapter 14. And of course, if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we've looked at those following passages. And so it's possible that Paul could be saying, now I want you in the local church, you must receive, you must welcome the strong and the weak. Or you who are strong must welcome or receive those who are weak. But I believe that what Paul is doing here in verse 7 is he is launching into the following verses. Who are we to receive into the church? Gentiles only? Jews only? Which is it? Well, let's look at the text together. Paul points us first to Christ's service to the circumcised. That's a curious term, isn't it? That's an expression referring to the Jew. And it could also be a veiled reference to the actual Old Testament covenant, the sign and seal that God had put upon His covenant people of circumcision. But the point is this. Out of all the world, God set His favor upon Abraham, upon His son Isaac, upon his son Jacob, also known as Israel, upon Israel's children. God set his favor. And it was to, remember what Jesus said, it was to the lost sheep of Israel that Jesus said that he came. And it is in this ministry that Paul describes our Lord Jesus Christ, look at verse 8 with me, as, quote, a servant. What kind of servant? A servant to show God's truthfulness. A servant to show God's truthfulness. Now, you may not write in your Bible, but if you're, you're taking notes, that word truthfulness jumps out. It jumps out here in our English translation. It jumps out in the original languages. Truthfulness. And, and, and I'm, when I'm looking at that, I'm thinking, well, I know where he's going with this. I know he's going to go from Jew to Gentile, but what is that truthfulness? In my notes, I might circle truthfulness. Well, what is it? Well, pause for just a moment and, and let's ask this question. Paul points us to the promises given to the patriarchs. What's he mean by patriarchs? He means Israel's fathers, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what was it that God promised Abraham, for example? Do you remember that? 
You can go back quickly to Genesis chapter 12. You don't need to turn there, but if you're taking notes, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 2, here's what we would read. The Lord promised Abram this, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And, as good students of the Bible, I know you know this, God indeed blessed Abraham. But what about his promise to bless the nations? And what does that mean? Interestingly enough, in the Greek, the word ethnos can be translated nations, and it can also be translated Gentiles. Same word, often translated two different ways. What does it mean that God promised Abraham to bless the nations or the Gentiles? Well, to answer this, we've got to first consider Paul's use of this word truthfulness. What truthfulness would Christ serve to the circumcised? And what truthfulness through them would lead the Gentiles, indeed the nations, to glorify God for His mercy. I hope I've got you thinking at this point. It's none other than the gospel. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news. Think about it. What did Paul say to the Galatians? When in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The good news that as it was preached in the book of Acts, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And it is this gospel, it's this truthfulness that serves as a door It is this gospel that serves as the door through which the Jew enters. It is this gospel, the door through which the Gentile enters into the church of Christ, united as the people of God through faith in Christ. Therefore, the people of God, the people of God are not identified by their ethnicity. The people of God are not identified by their nation. No, the people of God are identified through their faith in the Son of God. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so we too, and by we I mean Jew and Gentile alike, we walk in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. The testimony of Scripture is crystal clear. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that we should become the fa- that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told. So shall your offspring be. And let us remember that the words that God spoke to Abraham that. It was counted to him as righteousness were not written, Paul says, for his sake alone, but for whom? For you? For me? It was written for ours also. 
It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. (laughs) That is the beauty of the gospel. And as the people of God, that, that folks, is our redemptive history. Yes, we have a beautiful history. Don't get me wrong. I love, in fact, I can wax on to your boredom on the history of the Scottish church. Shall I begin? (laughs) And what a beautiful history we enjoy. But redemptively, redemptively, all who are in Christ have one family tree through Christ to Abraham, to the promise made to Abraham. And in all of this, God has done this for His people. And I might add, He has done this for His people according to His Word. This should come as no surprise. Brother and sister in Christ, everything that I have said up to this point, you should be able to say, I know that. I know that to be true because I know God's Word says it. And so the second thing that I want to look at is moving from the, God's faithfulness to His people is His faithfulness to His promises. To emphasize His point further, Paul takes us to the Word, doesn't it? And if you look at it the way that it'll probably laid out in your Bible, you'll see that it's grouped by quotations. Some of them are, are paraphrases, but all of this are broken out. It should draw our attention to say, Wow, he's being very intentional here to draw from the scriptures to make his point. And interestingly enough, in the grouping, he gives us four quotations or paraphrases. And to summarize that, scholars tell us that what he's doing here is he's drawing from the summary of the law. He's drawing from the summary of the prophets. And he's drawing from the summary of the writings. That is the entirety of the Old Testament in three groupings, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And he begins with this first paraphrase from 2 Samuel. In fact, if you're taking notes, you can study this later. In fact, you may want to look back at this entire song, 2 Samuel 22, verse 50. And here is Paul's paraphrase. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. If you look back at it in 2 Samuel, don't do this right now, do it later, but if you look back at it, you'll see that David's song of deliverance, as it's called, is a really long song. I mean, it's really long. And this verse that Paul pulls out is at the conclusion of this really long song. The summary of the song is praising God for his faithfulness, that David has saved him, or rather God has saved David from His enemies. But here's what is interesting. And you don't have to go back to the song to pick this up. Oftentimes we want to think of praise as private. I've said this to you before. When we gather in assembled worship. This is different than private praise. Private praise may be in your car. With your music going. 
Private praise may be in your prayer closet. But when we assemble here, this isn't private time. This is, we could, as I've said before, we could put our arms around one another and sing to the glory of God because we're together, we're assembled. And, and it's kind of like David's song of deliverance. It's not private praise. It is for the nations to hear. In fact, it's not a national anthem. But look at the quote. It is a hymn of praise that David intends to broadcast, and I quote, among the Gentiles, among the nations. The great salvation the Lord brings to this king, to King David, it's a testimony. To whom is it a testimony? It's a testimony to the Israelite. That's important. He's the king. But it's also a testimony to the nations. The king of Israel says, I'm singing forth. I want the world to hear it. Our God is an awesome God. And I desire, I sing forth that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. The second example that Paul gives us is not a song of David, but interestingly enough, it is another song. It's a song of Moses. This verse also comes at the conclusion of a rather lengthy song, a song of Moses. And Paul says, in quoting, Rejoice, O Gentiles, or rejoice, O nations, with His people. Now, if you look at this quotation in Romans and compare it with the Hebrew, interestingly enough, Paul inserts a preposition. He inserts the preposition, with. And I think that's important. I think what he's doing here by inserting that preposition with is he is implying a unity of praise. Jews cry out in praise to God. Gentiles cry out in praise to God together in the unity of God's people. This makes sense when we consider the testimony, and we see this through Moses' song, uh, also a song of deliverance, in the testimony of the Exodus. I mean, think about this, you students of your Bible. You read the Exodus. Is Israel the only one who sees what God is doing in His plagues upon Egypt? No. No. Is Israel the only one who sees the parting of the Red Sea? No. Is Israel the only one that sees the miracles that God works as He moves them out of Egypt and into the promised land? No. You could say, the world is watching. And I love this example. Rahab the prostitute. The most unlikely of people to seek to believe in the true God. To work in obedience to His Will. Rahab the prostitute hides the Israelite spies, and then, and you may have passed over this before in your reading, but it is a beautiful testimony. And then here is what she says to those spies I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And then she goes on and says, For the Lord your God, He is God 
in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You see, the testimony of God's mercy is given both to the Jew and to the Gentile. As Paul said, it's given in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. Third example that Paul gives is from a very short psalm, not a long song. Psalm 117, it's only two verses long. Paul draws from this song in which the, the psalm, in which the psalmist sings, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. But it is in the following verse, the concluding verse, that Paul doesn't quote that I find so enriching here, in which Paul reiterates the theme that he is declaring here, in which he says that what is God going to do for the Gentiles? Even all of these people, God is working in them for His praise. We praise Him for His greatness. The psalmist says that we praise Him for His steadfast love. Fascinatingly enough, that word steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, which typically refers to God's covenant faithfulness to His people Israel. And yet, Paul is pulling out this psalm and is saying, yes, God's covenant people do in fact praise Him. Do we not, you Gentile believers? Indeed, we do. The testimony of His love, the testimony of His faithfulness, is so that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. The fourth and final example that Paul gives, he actually says it's from Isaiah. And it's the most over-reference to Christ in his quotations, referring to Christ as the root of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, Christ the heir of David. He is the promised one. But look at this language. He is the promised one who will arise to rule the Gentiles. Notably, in the victory of his resurrection over death. He is the promised one who is the hope of the Gentiles that you and I might glorify God for His mercy. Now Paul's four examples may seem a bit redundant as if we might say, you had me at the first quote. Why four? But his message is clear over and over again, we see God's faithfulness to His people. We see God's faithfulness to His promises. And through the perfect provision of His one and only Son, we see the faithfulness of God. And as this is true, think with me, friends. When you and I are tempted to despair, when life is seemingly hopeless... Let us take our eyes off of ourselves and our circumstances and let us turn our focus upon the Lord, who He is and what He has done. And we find, we find this truth by going to His Word. 
reading of His faithful provision time and time again, that our hearts may be strengthened, that our hope may be renewed. Well, Paul concludes his appeal with a prayer. You'll look at this last verse with me. Drawing from Isaiah's prophecy that our hope is in the coming of the root of Jesse, then I'll work through all the apostles eventually. James, John, oh yeah, Paul. Paul prays this prayer. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. That should be familiar to y'all, right? You've heard it before. This is one of our benedictions. If I'd raised my hands at that point, everybody would have gotten it. Or you thought I was reaching for my Kleenexes. You knew, you know this. But isn't it fascinating to read it within this context? It is not only a beautiful benediction, it is a prayerful summation of the hope-filled Christian life. Read it again. He is our God of hope. That Greek phrase could also be translated, He is the God who gives us hope. For our God who gives us hope is the source of our hope. Friends, your hope is not in the world. And if it is, I'm not surprised if you're having problems at the moment. Your hope is not in your neighbor. Your hope is not in your circumstances. Your hope is not in your possessions. Our hope is in the Lord who made heaven and earth. I mean, just this truth alone should be hope-giving. We should contemplate this truth and gain hope just in that. Think about it. In a world of constant change, in a life not guaranteed tomorrow, neither you nor I, think about it, neither you nor I know one moment of our existence without change. We grow up, we grow old, But God never changes. He is eternal. What do the scriptures tell us about our Lord Jesus Christ? He is the same when? Yesterday. He is the same when? Today. He is the same when? Same what day? Forever. He is the same. And though the grass withers... And though the flower fades, do you know what will stand forever? And if you don't, I'm going to be remarkably disappointed. (laughs) The word of the Lord, the word of our God will stand forever. He, Scripture says, is from everlasting to everlasting. He, Scripture says, he is the everlasting God. He is true to his word. And as he said through King David, through Moses, through the psalmist, and through Isaiah. Our God is the God of hope. And he is not silent. And he is not absent. He is the God who gives hope through the indwelling presence of his spirit. Yielding fruit 
in us, such as joy, such as peace. The joy we know in Christ, that joy is never circumstantial, but it is a God-given fruit of tranquility that transcends all conditions. Christians experience joy on sunny mountaintops. But do you know what else? We experience joy in stormy valleys below. Because our joy is not based on our circumstances. But it is based on our God who is our hope. Likewise, the peace, for example... Peace that we enjoy within the church. Harmony among the beloved. Did you know that it's not manufactured? Did you know that it's not because we put together some plan? Did you know that it's not by, done by anything any of us could conjure up? But rather, the peace that we enjoy is not imported, but it is because He is present. His presence is present. That's why Jesus said, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. Not some kind of promise for assembly, a statement of fact. He is present in His presence. And so Paul prays specifically that our God of hope will give these fruits through faith, that He'll give them with purpose. And then look at the end of this last verse. I don't want you to miss this. And then He says what? That we might abound in hope. That we might abound in hope. Well, what does that mean? Abound sounds like bound. Am I just bouncing with joy and peace? Is that what that means? No, the word that is translated here, abound, means to have abundance, to be rich, or it simply means to have more. To have more, that we might abound in hope. That we might have more hope. Paul's prayer is that we might have more hope today than we did yesterday. <laughs> The essential fruits of joy and peace of the Holy Spirit. That's a beautiful petition to pray. And so you know what? As I'm studying this, I pray this for you. And I pray that you would pray it for me. That we who may glorify God, as Paul has said previously, that we as a people, as a church, that as we come together, that we might glorify God as one voice, that we may be filled with all joy and peace through faith in the power of the Holy Spirit, that we might be brimming over with hope. Let's pray. And so our gracious God, by virtue of your gospel, we desire to be a people of hope, for you are a God who gives hope. And we pray through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ that we will not be characterized by our fretting, but by faith. That we will not be characterized by our worry, but by your will. That we may not be characterized as a people 
who have no hope. But by the power of your Holy Spirit, may we be a people who are brimming over with it. For we pray this in our Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon. We hope you have grown in your knowledge of and love for God. Covenant Presbyterian is a PCA church that meets for worship on Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. Our address is 120 North 9th Street in historic downtown Fort Smith, Arkansas. For more information about Covenant, visit our website at www.cpcfs.org.